The term doublethink was coined by George Orwell in his very well-known book, 1984. And doublethink was a part of the vocabulary that was encouraged by the higher-ups in this book to help them maintain control over the populace. And what doublethink involved was holding two mutually exclusive two contradictory ideas that could not both be true, but holding them both to be true in your mind at the same time, and not noting that they are contradictory, not noting that they are in conflict, or at least not feeling anything about it, or acting to resolve this contradiction in any way. You might, for instance, believe that we need peace in every instance of diplomacy, but also hold a militarily hawkish view of foreign policy. If you were engaged in doublethink, you could do both of these things at the same time and convince yourself that as you acted upon one, it was not at the expense of the other. Or on a smaller scale, you might believe that fitness is absolutely vital but also believe that eating fast food for every meal is absolutely vital. And so doublethink was basically the act of getting rid of cognitive dissonance, which is the uncomfortable feeling of holding conflicting ideas. This is the feeling that makes us think through our positions on things and our ideas about the world, and which eventually allows the stronger or what we perceive to be the more likely to be true ideas, to win out and shape our perspective of the world. Without this type of concreteness that results from this conflict and competition of ideas that happens internally, we have no objective truth on which to base our reality. And consequently, we have no real choice except to trust what we are told but also at times when we are incentivized to think this way in real life, we are typically then instructed on how to think and what to think by some type of authoritarian or demagogue. Now, double speak is kind of an offshoot of double think, except instead of it being an internal, intentional ignoring of cognitive dissonance, Doublespeak more typically relates to the obfuscation of truth by means of speaking in such a way that you are being contradictory, but not obviously so. And so sometimes this obfuscation will take the form of euphemisms like calling layoffs, downsizing, or saying something like meaningful downturn in aggregate output when you are in fact referring to a recession. By renaming these things, you reposition them, and as such you are technically, in most cases, telling the truth, but you're also saying something very different. That latter example was actually used by the U.S. government in 1991, and it was one of the contenders that year for the annual Doublespeak Award. 
which is a quite dubious honor, bestowed by the National Council of Teachers of English each year to the most profound abuser of doublespeak that year. Looking back several decades, the U.S. government or some U.S. politician typically takes this award. In 2010, for instance, Congressman Dick Armey declared that we needed smokers because they helped keep the healthcare systems funded because they have to go into the hospital all the time and pay for treatments because they are unhealthy from smoking. And therefore, anti-smoking programs were bad for our healthcare system and should therefore not be supported or funded. In 1995, Newt Gingrich received the Doublespeak Award for his book entitled To Renew America, which, among other instances of doublespeak, and there are many contained within the book, he stated that true Americans do not blame their problems on others before going on to identify all of the problems that he perceived America to have and then systematically blaming each and every one of them on someone else. It will perhaps be surprising to very few that for 2016, Donald Trump has been unanimously voted to win this year's Doublespeak Award, and one committee member has noted that, quote, I don't think we've ever had a better example of the Doublespeak Award, end quote. What I want to talk about today is not doublespeak, but the things we say and don't say, and why we do and do not say them, even though in some cases we know the things we do not say are true. You are listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. This episode and every episode of Let's Know Things is brought to you by listeners like you. Thank you so very much to everyone who has contributed to the podcast already. If you are looking to contribute to help support the continued production of this show, you can go to letsknowthings.com. Scroll down a little bit, you will see a bunch of different options. There are direct monetary options, and there are non-monetary sharing and review-related options that are equally helpful. This episode is also brought to you by Audible. If you go to audibletrial.com LKT, you will get a free month of Audible, plus a free audiobook of your choice. Stick around till the end of the episode for a book recommendation upon which you can spend that free audiobook credit if you so desire. This episode is also brought to you by HostGator. Go to HostGator.com LKT, and you will receive a substantial discount off of their already very reasonable prices. HostGator.com LKT if you have hosting needs. Thank you so much for your support, whatever shape it might take. Let's get back to the show. There was an item in the news over the last couple of weeks, and it's not the subject of this episode, but it is an example of kind of the bigger picture in which this discussion takes place. 
And this news item is one of the portions of a leaked document of Hillary Clinton's transcripts of the talks that she gave at Wall Street firms. And this has been a very divisive issue with some people saying, okay, well, that's something all politicians do. They have to pay the bills. That's a good way to make money. And other people saying, well, she is talking to the enemy. What the hell is going on there? And perhaps even more importantly, what is she saying to these people who have screwed us over before? These people that we are concerned that she has very tight-knit relationships with. And how might that inform the decisions that she makes as president if she wins? But this quote in particular was really fascinating because it strikes at a deeper issue that I think a lot of us see, but we don't always identify. And I'll read the quote real quick, and then I'll talk about why it's so fascinating. Quote, you just have to sort of figure out how to balance the public and the private efforts that are necessary to be successful politically. That, I think, has probably been true for all of our history. And if you saw the Spielberg movie, Lincoln, and how he was maneuvering and working to get the 13th Amendment passed, and he called one of my favorite predecessors, Secretary Seward, who ran against Lincoln for president, and he told Seward, I need your help to get this done. I mean, politics is like sausage being made. It is unsavory, and it always has been that way, but we usually end up where we need to be. But if everybody's watching all of the backroom discussions and the deals, then people get a little nervous, to say the least. So you need both a public and a private position. End quote. And that last line tended to dominate the headlines. The rest of it was kind of left out. And she actually mentioned it during, I believe, the second debate. Mentioned the context of that, that she was talking about the Lincoln movie and the way that he had used that language in that argument to help get the 13th Amendment passed. But the idea that you have an argument that you make outwardly to the public, and then a completely different, potentially radically different argument that you make to the, what, the other politicians, the people in the know, the people who are funding your campaign, maybe. That was something that struck a chord, in part because it seemed to reinforce one of the major concerns that people have about Clinton, that she is very experienced, and that as a result, of that experience. She has a lot of connections and perhaps a lot of debts that are owed, or perhaps she's in quite deep and as a result is saying that she's going to be one type of president and in fact will be another type of president. This ended up being a bit of a scandal and a bit of a short-lived one, quite frankly, the way that a lot of the scandals in this particular election season have been, where they dominate the news cycle, one or two news cycles, and then disappear in favor of the next crazy thing that Donald Trump did, or some other WikiLeaks leak. But needless to say, it looked quite bad. It's the type of statement that as a politician you're not supposed to make. You don't want people to feel that you are two-faced, despite the fact that I think we all know, or we all expect at least, that there's going to be information that we as the public are not privy to, that there are going to be different sides of the same issue that will appeal to different people. 
And that, frankly, you get good at telling the same story in different ways. And so even if you are trying to get a certain bill passed because of the economic value of it, you might tell a completely different story when you are pitching it on a news network because it has more emotional pull. This is something that every politician does, that every marketer does, that anybody who who does deal with the public, with a capital P, does. But it's not something that you're supposed to say. It's not something that's supposed to get out that you are doing this, because then you are seen as the two-faced one, despite the fact that everybody is doing it. Because everybody else can kind of just fake it, fake that they're not doing it. Even though if everybody they're speaking to ever went and compared notes, they could see very easily that that's not the case. But sure, okay, so it kind of makes you seem like you're perhaps a little two-faced, and you can't help but wonder what this person is saying when you're not around, how their story changes when they're not talking to you. But beyond that, like, why should it actually matter? Logically, rationally, even if it's not something that we've thought about before in terms of politics or in terms of anything else, why should it matter that you can talk about the same issue in two different ways or that you can have multiple different reasons for pursuing the same goal? That is the topic that leads into the story that I want to unspool on this episode. The title of that piece is Obituary, Great Barrier Reef, 25 Million BC to 2016. And this is a piece that was published in Outside Magazine. And essentially what it does is declare the death of the Great Barrier Reef. It talks about some of the history. And it refers to the fact that although it's not a deed completely done, there is still not dead reef and reef life left, that a significant enough portion of the Great Barrier Reef is dead. And because of the systems and the variables that are causing that death and have caused that death, those are not subsiding. That there is no reason to think that this death spiral will subside. And consequently, this is the year that they, or this author at least, declares the Great Barrier Reef dead. The response to this article was swift. And it wasn't just from people reading it in horror, it was from the scientific community as well. One of the many response pieces that was written in response to this article in Outside Magazine, was in the Huffington Post. And it was entitled, Great Barrier Reef Obituary Goes Viral to the Horror of Scientists. And the counter-argument made there is that, yeah, something like 20% to one-fourth of the Great Barrier Reef is dead. And yeah, there's bleaching on all of the reefs that they tested worldwide, except for something like 7% of them. And yeah, the systems that are causing this death spiral are still continuing and there's no sign of them ceasing. But to make such an announcement is irresponsible because it can influence the way that people see the natural world and can make them give in to this idea that it's too late and therefore not do anything to change the status quo or even try to help some of these things that are dying to prevent them from dying all the way. 
To quote the Huffington Post piece, Brainard said the scientific community has become increasingly concerned that overstatements about the state of our planet, like the one Jacobson, who's the author of the Outside Magazine piece, made, can cause people to lose hope. They may start to think, if there's nothing that can be done, let's not do anything and move on to other issues, he said. He compared the Outside Magazine article to someone chopping down 50% of the trees in a forest and telling you the forest is gone, end quote. And so the argument seems to be, this is something that is happening, and it's real. The Huffington Post does mention that, that this is something that is very much happening, and although it's not dead yet, there are a lot of forces at play, and scientists are working their asses off to try to prevent this, but there is no reason to believe that the way things are going, that this death spiral will end. But despite that information, we shouldn't talk about it that way because of the likely consequences of talking about it that way. In other words, by presenting the absolute facts, everything that we know about the issue, we could end up with what I think most people would agree are arguably worse results. The reef could die all the way because people cease to care about it and assume it's already dead. Then if we, say, presented the story of this dying ecosystem as something that is dying, but still savable, because then the perception that people have about it could result in more favorable consequences down the line. So think about that. The way that we talk about issues, big and small issues, can influence what happens next. On the other hand, we do want our journalism resources to tell us the way that things actually are. As the Hillary Clinton leak shows, people do not respond well to believing that people who are supposed to keep them informed and be straight with them are in fact telling them a different story than they are telling themselves behind closed doors. So let's imagine that it's true, that telling people the barrier reef is dead will cause us to stop caring because it is a done deal, and perhaps that will reduce the chances of saving what's left of it because our perspective will shift to something like, hey, you know, it's already dead, what's the point? Is it the responsibility of the people who are fully aware of these issues and have all of the information, is it their responsibility to tell us the full and absolute truth? To tell us that the Great Barrier Reef is almost certainly dead, and there's probably nothing that we can do to stop that? Or is it better to spin the message a little bit, to tidy it up, to present it from a slightly different perspective? with most of the facts, but not all of them, so that we potentially, even if not absolutely, or even not necessarily are likely to, but just maybe get better results. It's not an easy question to answer, because I think any answer that you might give just off the top of your head, you could probably think of a situation in which that would not be the case in both directions, whatever your answer happens to be. Let's expand on this conversation a little bit. 
there is a great deal of evidence, very worrying evidence, that we may have already stumbled too far past the point of no return when it comes to global climate change to do anything to prevent what's going to happen. There is a lot of evidence that we may have, perhaps even a relatively long time ago, all things considered, moved past a point where we could have stopped or at least meaningfully slowed down the processes that are in motion and that at this point, the best that we can possibly hope for is to prepare ourselves for this new normal, for the immense change that is coming and that we've already started to see the very tip of in our changing climate but which the full brunt of will be even more substantial and noticeable. There's evidence that our best move at this point will be building walls around coastal areas to keep our coastal cities from becoming underwater cities, developing and distributing vaccines faster and more cheaply so that the spread of tropical diseases into new areas, which has already started, but will be amplified, won't cause a cataclysmic death toll, that we should shift to new means of energy production so that we can continue to operate at a high level of technology, even if aspects of civilization begin to collapse, and so that we're not forced to try to make that shift later, at which point the world would have become fairly unrecognizable in many ways, and we'll have many other new problems that we will want to give the majority of our attention to. This is not a happy story to tell. And it's easy to imagine that if the public as a whole were to latch on to this version of the climate change story and truly believe it that there's nothing we can do to prevent this change from happening at this point, that we are too far gone, they might decide that there's no point in switching to renewable resources and no point to refining and evolving our recycling processes and no point to maintaining or innovating our infrastructure because it's all going to go to hell anyway. That this is the opinion that some people might come to hold if told that particular version of the story is not a supposition that is made lightly. When hope is stripped away from people, the hope of maintaining the current state of affairs and the hope of moving toward a happier outcome, whatever the current state of affairs and whatever that happier outcome might be in context, people tend to become quite resigned to an unhappy outcome. They just accept that it's going to happen and try to bolster themselves internally and give up on a lot of the upkeep and change and frankly, struggle that they otherwise might commit themselves to. They pull back from movements that might result in a happier outcome, though because that happier outcome is not the happy outcome that they want. It's still a quite dour, sad, dark future, but it's much better than the alternative. And that is a case that doesn't sell quite as well when you're trying to make it on a large scale. And so in these two cases, in in the case of the Great Barrier Reef being in a death spiral, that would be miraculous if we could pull it out of it, but not terribly likely. 
And the same for the climate change spiral that we're in, that there's very likely nothing that we can do to prevent some of these worst case scenarios that we've been talking about. And all we can really do and what we should do potentially is focus on what life looks like after those changes have occurred. These are not stories that are morale boosters. These are not things that encourage and incentivize people to throw their back into the work that they have to do and the sacrifices today that will have to be made to end up with a less bad future. Trying to sell somebody on something that is less bad is a very difficult thing to do compared to painting a black and white picture and saying, hey, either we have the apocalypse or we you know, live in a shiny futuristic tech utopia. That may be one way to describe the future that we can look forward to. But if we are telling the absolute, complete, fact-filled truth, it may be a shiny tech utopia that takes place in a world that is unrecognizable because of the impact of climate change. To tell a story, a happier story, that keeps people engaged, we very often have to resort to incomplete truths, or even mistruths, so as to keep the positive momentum going. If the reef is dead, what's the point of continuing to work and sacrifice to save it? If it's on the precipice, however, if it is threatened and being hurt and needs our help because it can still be saved, then there's incentive to keep fighting. And maybe even more diligently than before, when we weren't struggling and hanging off the edge of a cliff. Let's bring this back around to politics. If you work for a campaign... And if you're high enough up the ranks within that campaign, chances are you will have some real stats and some real data that will let you know if things are going sideways within that campaign. You will know, then, with more certitude than most, if there is no chance to win. There is a very good argument for concealing, or at least spinning, that is, reframing this data, regardless of what it says, because there is always a chance, however slim, that you could defy the data. The data could be wrong, or something else could happen, your opponent could slip up, and you would need to be in a very good position to take advantage of that slip-up. And so it wouldn't be beneficial to instill doubt in your supporters, even if you know with absolute certitude that things are not going well and you will very likely lose. Because that would disallow you from taking advantage of a so-called October surprise or something along those lines, something unforeseen. This is kind of the equivalent of something that I learned back when I was playing intercollegiate ultimate frisbee back in college. We learned that even if there is no way in hell, that you can catch that disc that is flying off into the distance, you still keep running after it until it hits the ground, no matter what. This is kind of a frisbee policy, partially because the nature of how a frisbee flies through the air. You never quite know what will happen to it because of its shape and because of the way that it interacts with its environment. And it could be that you stop chasing it, and then it just hangs there in the air for a long while, and you feel like a giant idiot for not chasing it and then catching it when its status changed. 
But you also ensure that you never stop running after it because it sets kind of a precedent. You do not give up no matter what. You chase that disc until it hits the ground. No questions asked. This is a policy that inspires hustle that might otherwise disappear in favor of defeatism as soon as you do not believe that you will win or you feel that a loss is more likely than a win. It inspires you to keep going and that essentially ensures, if it was politics, that you are able to take advantage of that unforeseen last minute circumstance where suddenly being in the right position at the right time and not having given up, you are able to sneak a win where one wasn't likely. I would argue that Bernie Sanders' loss in this year's Democratic primaries here in the U.S. was something kind of like that, but a little bit different. Yes, there was reason to believe that he probably wasn't going to win. And yes, the folks higher up in his campaign no doubt had access to this data, so they knew exactly what his chances were. And yes, I am sure that there was a desire amongst his supporters to keep the dream alive, even when that began to look like quite an unlikely dream. But in this case, there was another ulterior motive to keep those numbers up, or to keep the perception of them up, rather, even when the numbers were not indicating anything positive. In Bernie's case, even if he didn't win the Democratic candidacy and get the official nomination from his party, having a large turnout, a large enthusiastic turnout by his people who still supported him, which indicated that he was essentially bringing a large number of voters out to the ballot boxes, gave him a great deal of influence within the party in terms of how the platform was defined and where that party is headed next. There is a lot of reason to believe that the more left-than-usual views that are on the Democratic docket, alongside Hillary Clinton's more centrist views, are only really there because Bernie was able to muscle his way into the conversation. And he did this by having that strong showing all the way to the end, despite the fact that that showing was built atop numbers that were not going to give him the win. The motive of not telling the whole story then, or or telling a spun version of the story, in this case, was to ensure that people didn't give in to defeatism because there was an alternative victory that could be won. This is a similar tactic to the one that is being used by some people within the environmental movement right now. Many of the arguments we are hearing about global climate change, for instance, are not being made because these experts who have all of that data and know what is going on truly think that the actions of individuals will do anything to stop the shift in climate, in temperature, in oceanic acidification, in pollution, but rather they believe that by focusing people on those big issues that are visible, those issues that are more easily imagined, that are more easy to comprehend, that are easier in some ways to declare war on, to feel like you are part of something larger than yourself, they can then achieve more of the somewhat nebulous, more difficult to rally people around goals that they feel are important 
going into this new environmental landscape. Things like switching over to 100% or as close to 100% as we can manage renewable energy, for instance. Preventing the further entrenchment of entities that have been a major source of pollution and climate change-related actions and activities, like fossil fuel-based energy companies and large-scale meat industry interests, for instance. And even things like trying to prevent the rise of so-called NIMBYism. NIMBY is an acronym for Not in My Backyard, and refers to people who say they're trying to help save the planet, but don't want the infrastructure required to do that, like wind turbines and solar panels in their neighborhoods. And so this is a real problem in certain parts of the U.S. right now, and it has people who believe in this ideology of trying to prevent some of the worst-case scenarios of global climate change, but they are not willing to do anything about it. They do not want that required infrastructure in their backyard because it will change their home value or something of that nature, or they just don't want to see the turbines. And so issues like that, those are things that are a little bit more difficult to rally people around because there's a lot more political baggage around it. There's a lot more ideas surrounding these concepts. But if they can continue to push forward the bigger, easier to understand, simple concepts related to climate change, then they can attach these other issues to those bigger issues. And so consequently, they end up with kind of an alternative victory, even if they are not able to prevent the two degree Celsius temperature change the way that they had once hoped. They can still, as a byproduct, reduce a significant amount of the pollution that is in the atmosphere. They can reduce the scale of certain industries that have become entrenched politically and otherwise, and which have caused a lot of these issues to try to prevent them from worsening the issues and maintaining the political power that has allowed them to do that. And they can put into place infrastructure that will allow us to become, as a species, a lot more energy-stable and capable of sustaining ourselves whatever the environment happens to look like around us. And so those are two primary reasons why one might intentionally spread half-truths or outright misinformation about something. They might do it in order to bolster their own position, just in case an opportunity to achieve a last-minute victory arises, or to just try to outlast the other guy, or as an effort to achieve a different, or perhaps wildly different, goal, some other alternative victory. A goal that might not serve as an attractive rallying cry, but one that is potentially achievable so long as people stay on track and do not succumb to defeatism. So here's a question worth thinking about. If scientists detected an asteroid hurtling toward Earth, and there was a 100% certainty of it striking Earth within a handful of hours and without enough time to do anything about it. Would you want to know? And do you think that they should tell us? This is a concept that is tackled in fictional storylines all the time. Typically, the higher-ups who have to make this decision opt to keep the public ignorant of the facts, figuring, perhaps rightly so, that the foreknowledge in this case would actually cause more harm than good. 
those final hours would become kind of a hellscape, which in their minds would be less desirable than just ignorance and then a brief, quick death. And so to them, not releasing the whole truth in that circumstance would be the more humane option, whereas the telling of the complete truth would be something that would cause a great deal of harm to a great number of people, in addition to the harm that was already hurtling our way through space. These same stories also very often put the hero, the protagonist of the story, in the uncomfortable position of having found out about this concealment of truth. And then that protagonist very often decides that it is wrong, that this information is being kept from the public. And in some cases, they go on to solve this unsolvable problem, whether it's an asteroid or something else. It's interesting that this is so often the case, so often that it's become a bit of a fiction trope, that you have this hero who discovers that the higher-ups are keeping something from us. And in most cases, if you look at it from a purely rational, somewhat utilitarian standpoint to try to cause the least amount of harm to the greatest number of people, it actually does make sense to keep this from people, typically. But there is kind of a cultural imperative, in some cultures at least, I think, that people should tell the truth and the whole truth, and that very much includes our leaders. Even when that telling of the truth might be foolhardy, when it might lead to the planet becoming an anarchic hellscape right before an asteroid hits, or if telling that truth harms the other person who's in a relationship with you. By a lot of measures, the rational thing that would cause the least amount of harm would be to tell a mistruth. But the culturally acceptable, correct thing for our heroes and the people we portray as heroes is to tell the truth no matter what. The idea that we seem to be presenting with these fictions is that the truth is worth sacrificing for, even if learning that truth does not do those who receive it any good and may in fact cause them to suffer. It is still the correct thing to do by at least our public idea of what heroism is. So what is the wrong thing to say? What is the wrong information to deliver in such a circumstance? Do you tell the truth that will cause harm? Or the mistruth that will deny factual knowledge, but with the intention of not causing that harm, or causing a lesser harm, perhaps? Something that I think about a lot, and which occupies another facet of this discussion, is the conflict between the dissemination of information about, and even the portrayal of, the world as we want it to be and the dissemination of information about and the portrayal of the world as it is. One example of this might be a newspaper or website, or even a parent or a friend, telling a woman, giving her tips, about how to avoid being sexually assaulted. The advice being given might be very well-meaning, and it could even be useful. There could be utility to it. It might help her survive or avoid an encounter. But the counter-argument to doing this, to telling a woman, here's what you need to do to avoid being assaulted, 
is that it should not be her responsibility to have to avoid such a thing. She should not have to avoid dressing a certain way or keep a close eye on her drink. It is, in fact, men who should be taught how to act to solve this problem. We should change whatever aspect it is of masculine culture that causes so many sexual assaults every year. Women should not be trained to dodge these issues because the world should not be stacked in such a way that a man's assault on a woman is seen and treated like it's some kind of unavoidable force of nature. To do this, to make it seem as if it is the woman's responsibility to prevent this, is to essentially victim blame. It's to imply fault Because if the woman then gets assaulted, well, she should have not dressed that way. She should have paid closer attention to her drink. When in reality, of course, that should not have to be an issue. That is blaming the victim of an assault for what happened to her. And so consequently, it is arguably more correct to apply the informational torque that we have that we can deliver through news mediums and even through advice to a friend in a direction that will actually attempt to solve the real problem, which is this toxic form of masculinity that leads to sexual assault. But this change of focus, although it may someday bear fruit, we can hope that eventually assaults will become a thing of the past, it doesn't change the situation as it exists on the ground. And it may be more correct and hopefully more impactful to solve this problem at the source But that does not do a thing to adjust the reality that many women still face on a regular basis. And so we run into a problem here where the thing that we ideally say that it is the men who need to be taught not to assault women isn't complete. And the thing we should probably not say because it implies blame for the victim of these assaults that women should be wary and take extra precaution. This is a message that we should either deliver, arguably, to our moral long-term detriment, or not deliver, which is arguably to our practical detriment. We want to live in a world where this is not an issue, but the instructions that we offer to those who live in that world end up being garbled, because one set focuses on the theoretical, the ideal, while another focuses on the day-to-day reality, the concrete, and perhaps reinforces the bad things that are happening, which perhaps keeps us where we are, and perhaps keeps us from moving toward that more ideal state. In this way, what we should and should not say in a given circumstance can very often be less than clear. Because the two key directions that we could take, both of which make sense in a different way and serve a different utility, can actually feel at odds and can actually be at odds and can reduce the impact of each individually when offered together. I have enough of a journalism background to feel a tug on my sensibilities anytime I engage in an inner debate about this topic. Because journalistically, one should most ideally report information that is vital to the public understanding. In democratic societies, 
an educated electorate is fundamental or the system doesn't work. The role of the press is to ensure that the public is informed so that they might make the right decisions in the voting booth. Now, this is a fairly modern interpretation of the press. Granted, back in the day, before the 20th century, much of the journalism that was published was actually what we would today probably consider editorial pages or opinion pieces. There's actually a fairly widespread debate happening right now in the age of online publications and pseudo-publications and independent journalists and heavily slanted TV networks and so-called post-fact news coverage about whether or not this is still the case, whether or not journalism is still supposed to be informing people so that they become an educated electorate first and foremost. And if that is still the case, how we go about ensuring that people are getting the information that they need and ensuring that the information they are receiving is legitimate. It is not enough anymore today to just trust the big names, because in some cases, historically, the big names in journalism have been codependent on certain economic entities or governments, and therefore, in those cases, the smaller blogs and radio shows and Twitter accounts even have been the only places to find real actual facts. On the other hand, very often these smaller entities possess substantially less credibility because they lack the well-honed bureaucratic system of checks and balances that take place in a newsroom and the much deeper pockets of a traditional news publication. And so they cannot afford necessarily to do the same type of long-duration stories that a traditional newspaper or media entity could do. And within this debate, though it's not often said in these words, what's really most often being debated is kind of the definition of public interest. That is a key component to doing good journalism in the traditional sense. What you are trying to do is present information that is in the public interest because then they can take that information and make better decisions when they are selecting our government. But what is in the public interest is very often subject to individual views. If you look at an entity like ProPublica, they define the public interest in part as reporting on stories with moral force. And they define journalism as work that shines a light on exploitation of the weak by the strong and on the failures of those with power to vindicate the trust placed in them. And so that's a, a fairly clear definition. And other newspapers, I think, other news entities will give their own definitions, but few of them, I think, adhere to their own policies quite so often as ProPublica does. A lot of these policies might be something that a few aspirationally hold on to people within their ranks, but just as often the decisions are being made by the business people, I think, and the business interests of that particular entity. And just as often as they're doing things in the public interest, they are doing things in somebody's interest, but not necessarily the unbiased, 
unslanted version of the public interest that we might expect when we hear that phrase. Which is to say that different news entities have different focuses. And resultantly, they see the public interest in a different light from their competitors. Looking at the exact same story and the exact same collection of data, the Huffington Post and Fox News will very likely report very different things because their respective ideas about what is moral and what is ideal for a society to know and consequently to believe stem from radically different perspectives, different sets of values that inform what they decide to say and what they won't or can't say, not because it's necessarily not true, but because spreading such information might hamstring their pursuit of delivering a point of view that they perceive to be in the public interest. And so once again, we see incentive for delivering spun truth or incomplete truth or outright mistruth for a goal that, to the philosophies held by the people making these decisions, is more important than presenting all of the information that they might have. Now, to be fair, it is incredibly difficult to present information of any kind in an unbiased fashion. I would actually argue, and I'm not alone in this, that there's no actual real true means of delivering a completely unbiased collection of information not through the news sources and platforms that we have available, at least. Even if you don't go out and print a story with a headline like global climate change, which is caused by human activities, is increasing, the fact that you report on a particular subject at all in itself is a subjective choice. By reporting on something, by putting it in the paper, putting it on the website, and where you put it on the website, is deciding which information is important enough, which stories are important enough to the public interest as you see it, to present to the public. Out of all the information out there that you could be talking about, that you could be delivering, this is the information that you are highlighting and delivering to people who trust your point of view in the matter. This, then, latently instills bias in every news article, every news website, every paper that you see, every 24-hour news station, that they choose what they choose is as biased a decision as the way they choose to deliver it. And that's an important thing to remember. And that brings us back around to the beginning of the discussion. What we say and don't say, and why we say or do not say these things. Simply by having a conversation about a particular topic, we influence that conversation. We put a slant on it in some way because of the way that we present it or the fact that we present it at all. This is part of what is so completely disrupting the contemporary media environment because suddenly everything is being spoken about. Everything is being discussed by someone out there. And it's being presented in a consumable format, so chances are somebody is hearing it, even if it's just one person. As a result, it is increasingly unlikely that any of us will be exposed to anything that isn't being said by someone, somewhere, to some group of people, 
And therefore, we are unlikely to be exposed to anything that is not slanted and biased in some way, perhaps multiple times before it reaches our ears. This is part of what's so powerful about these technologies that we use to communicate. We can have all of these conversations in parallel as a society and explore all of these different perspectives, these different realities, really, and come to wildly different conclusions based on what we are consuming, based on our own biases. This is a real problem, actually, right now, because we are just coming out of a moment in media history during which we were essentially just passive consumers of information and didn't have much choice in that. We were essentially fed our media diet from one of just a few distributors each day, and they decided the menu. This is very much not the case now, today. We have more options than can possibly be counted, and though many people, perhaps rightfully, bemoan this state of affairs, I don't know that it's necessarily a negative thing. I think we just have a lot to learn in terms of being able to filter the signal from the noise. We have to figure out how to become more active, intentional consumers of information. And this is something that is already and will continue to be, and probably increasingly so, enabled by the tools that we have at our disposal. The filters in our social networks, the tools that allow us to see multiple perspectives on the same news item, the tools that add context to bits of information, the tools that fact-check on the spot when something is said by a public figure. These are technologies that will continue to evolve, but for them to be truly useful, we actually need to evolve our own expectations as well. A power drill is no more useful than a fancy rock to someone who has no desire to learn how to use it and has no idea what they want to build. A motivated person, though, who knows what they want to accomplish and who has ambitions to become more skilled with the resources that they have available will be able to learn to use that power drill and to build great things with it. They'll be able to learn a lot of different tools. But without that ambition and without that drive and without the knowledge that you can learn how to do it, these tools will just sit there like a pile of rocks. It is not enough to simply sit back and nod in agreement with every talking head they put on TV or on the radio, on podcasts, on your favorite news website. We all have to become our own most enthusiastic advocates. And we all have to take care that our media diets are varied and are things that we are very intentionally choosing to consume. This approach, this being more intentional about media and learning how to use the tools that allow us to be increasingly more intentional, won't solve all of our problems. And no doubt, as they tend to do, more will emerge as a result of this shift of these new tools and of our newfound intentionality. But I do think that it will help solve this particular problem, and that we will be a lot more capable of distributing all of the facts more often, while also trusting that the people on the other end, on the receiving end of those facts, 
will understand not just what we're saying, but will be able to understand and comprehend the potential consequences of that data. And will hopefully, ideally, even be able to contribute to figuring out what the most ideal next steps might be. A great big thanks to everyone who has already seen fit to contribute to the show, whether directly, monetarily, or by sharing it with a friend or your social network, by writing a review on iTunes, sharing some stars. These are all very, very helpful contributions, and I truly appreciate them. If you would like to contribute to help keep the show going, you can go to letsknowthings.com, and if you scroll down a little bit, you will see a bunch of different options as to how you can do this. Another great way to help the show is to check out the sponsors, and the sponsors for this episode are Audible. If you go to audibletrial.com LKT, you will get a 100% free trial of the service for one month and a completely free audiobook of your choice from their massive collection. And you can cancel this after that month if you would like. If you don't want to continue with your membership, it's very easy to cancel. If you're anything like me, though, I think you will enjoy it. This is one of my favorite services, and I love getting my audiobook credit each month. Now, if you're looking for a book to spend that Audible credit on, might I suggest Weapons of Math Destruction? by Kathy O'Neill. I listened to this one recently. It is just a remarkable book. This is a woman who worked on Wall Street, and she was helping to kind of help create the system that allows Wall Street to game the system, and one day realized what she was doing and decided that she would not do that anymore and would start working for the other team. And so this book is about the algorithms and the, the just the formulas in general that have been deeply embedded in modern society to the point where they do help certain people maintain control over the economy, and they very much burden other people, whether that means that they are being kept in prison longer because an algorithm has decided that they should, or that they're having trouble getting a car loan or paying more for insurance because an algorithm says that they should be put in these less fortunate categories. These are systems that are largely a black box that essentially means that you don't know what's going on inside. All you can see are the inputs and outputs. And in a lot of cases, some very important decisions are being made by these formulas. And in a lot of cases, we are not even allowed to see what those formulas are. So we don't know how these decisions are being made. And so this is a book by a very smart person who is writing about a subject that she knows intimately. And it's something that I, just through some other stuff that I've researched and read before, knew the barest outlines of. And I was just gobsmacked by how deep this goes. So it's very much worth your time if you want to understand some of these non-tangible structures that exist within our society that kind of rig the system as often as they help the system. And so if that sounds interesting to you, check out Weapons of Math Destruction by Kathy O'Neill. 
You can, as I mentioned, grab that on Audible for free if you go to audibletrial.com slash LKT, but it is worth checking out regardless of how you get it. So you can also check out your local library, your local indie bookstore, get it on your Kindle, your Kobo, whatever makes sense for you. And this episode is also brought to you by HostGator. HostGator is my hosting company of choice. Everything works incredibly smoothly. They have very impressive uptime and tools available, other statistics for geeky people that you can check out that they have. But something that I appreciate is that their customer service is second to none. Really, really easy to deal with if you're having a problem or don't understand something. They really do get back to you right away and are incredibly friendly, which is something that's quite rare within the technology sector in some cases, particularly for these types of uh, back-end services. And if you go to hostgator.com LKT, you can check out their services along with a very significant discount that is given to listeners of Let's Know Things. So hostgator.com LKT is a great place to check out if you are looking for hosting services of some kind. Another way that you can help support the show and my work in general is to check out my books and perhaps purchase one. You can find a complete list of my work at colin.io, or you can just search for Colin Wright wherever you get your books. You can find my blog at exilelifestyle.com. I have a YouTube show, a video show with kind of short form video essays that is available on YouTube, and that is called Consider This. You can find me personally pretty much everywhere on the internet at Colin is my name. And you can do the same with the show at Let's Know Things. Pop on over to letsknowthings.com if you, as I mentioned before, want to contribute to the show in some way, or if you just want to check out the copious show notes that I put together for each episode, or if you would like to sign up for the monthly free Let's Know Things newsletter, which contains a selection of curated links to interesting things that I send out every Monday. Thank you so very much for listening. I am Colin Wright, and I will talk to you again next week. Mm-hmm.